This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. All right, good afternoon. Chris Saxman here on the VIP podcast. That's the VIP, Virginia in politics, not very important persons. Although we have two uh, VIPs on board with us today. Carrie Coiner, Delegate Carrie Coiner, is already a VIP because she was on the podcast during session. And now joining her, Delegate Mike Cherry. Let's start off with Mike Cherry. Say hello to the audience. Hello to the audience. There you go. <laughs> wise play, wise play. <laughs> Delegate, Delegate Coiner. Hi, Chris. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. And the VIP podcast is brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, of which I am its executive director. We're going to talk a lot about politics, policy in particular, as we get into the closer to hopefully getting out of session. Right now, it is May 24th, and we don't have a budget yet. A lot of that's going to impact uh, the state going forward, obviously. Where do we think th things stand right now, Delegate Coiner? Well, your guess is as good as mine, Chris. Um, it's been interesting um, reading different perspectives on what's happening. You know, I will say before we left our, our regular session, I thought we were making some great progress and issues that were most important to both bodies and the governor. You know, clearly education is a big one. I think we've all become a little bit more laser focused on um, the priority as we've had more and more days. So hopefully we're coming closer together on um, making education a priority and our spending. And um, we'll see that when we all come back together next week. Delegate Cherry, what are your thoughts? First time in and uh, we're in overtime. What do you think? First time in, we are in overtime. Um, obviously we're ready to get this done. Um, we've been ready to get this done since we were in session back in March and we're grateful. Uh, I know I'm hearing from my localities. I represent Chesterfield and Colonial Heights and you know, they want to send out teacher contracts. They want to formalize and finalize their budgets. Uh, most of them have passed uh, budgets with the implication that if the state funding isn't what they think it's going to be, they're going to have to come back and renegotiate some contracts. And that's that's a bad place for us to be putting local uh, localities and school divisions in is, is not knowing what we're going to do from the state function. So we have a, a job to do. It's to give them a, a, a budget so they know what they're getting in funding and I'm ready to get that done, and hopefully we get it done here very soon. What I've noticed from this uh, time in Virginia political history is <clears throat> almost a lack of conversation or lack of interest, concern, upset about passing a budget on time. Usually when uh, we're in these situations, it's because we have a lack of money. Now we have a largesse, and it's becoming difficult to figure out where it's all going to go, how are we going to build into programmatics, is it one-time spending, uh, and the like. Uh, why hasn't there been more of a, of a conversation about this? Chris, I think it fundamentally comes down to just the philosophies of the two parties that represent the majority of Virginians. And that is, you know, there is a budget surplus. The conservatives by and large want to give as much as we can back to the people. The reason for the budget surplus is the out of control inflation. And if we can give back as much as we can to the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia, that's what we want to do. And yet you've got state senators that are tweeting about how we can't give the money back. We need to spend it. Uh, there are priorities that they have on their side of the aisle that I don't think most Virginians are, are with. And so, uh, again, it's a, just a fundamental difference of the two parties, I believe. 
Right. So if, if I were to put that on a bumper sticker, I'd say, uh, give it back. It hurts right now. <laughs> it's not a bad That's bumper true. sticker. Maybe we yeah. can sell no, those for some. I don't, I don't charge for these services, Mike. I just try to be uh, help to help the people. Uh, delegate, delegate Coiner, what about you? What, what you've been in a little bit longer? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think Mike summed it up really well. It's just a difference of philosophy on what to do with the dollars. You know, we very much not our money. I tell people all the time. You know, it's not our money as elected officials or the state. It's the people's money. And so they task us with being good stewards of it and spending it on the things that the state should be doing and only collecting what we need to do those functions. So I, I think that's where we are. Um, there's a difference of opinion on what those functions should be right now. Um, but you know, I think what we've heard, at least when I'm out and about in the community, there's a real push and a real need to put some dollars back in people's pockets when they're looking at what the cost of things are right now, especially looking at gas getting to and from places you know i had a constituent who contacted me and said you know um the the kid who does lawn care um said that he wasn't gonna be able to do it anymore because he can't afford the amount of gas that it takes to run his, I mean, it's just a kid right like a kid home from school um and can't do it anymore based on the amount of money he's able to earn in the income level of neighborhood that he's been working in so we don't think about sometimes the day-to-day -day folks who are doing the best that they can and the impact all of this has had and you know look at our grocery stores you look at the formula shortage you look at all the things happening people are stressed and they're worried about where items are going to come from and spending and so just different philosophy okay i, I get all that uh both, both parties have had the, <clears throat> the difference of philosophies ever since they were federalist and anti-federalist it, it, it goes back a while however Getting the job done on time is, uh, is one of the things that Virginia used to uh, pat itself on the back for. It showed the business community in particular that we got our act together, we can govern, we can, we can have our differences of opinion, we can agree to disagree, but it's, now it's time to get the job done. What is, going to, what is it gonna take going forward to get the legislature and the executive branch to finish the uh, budget in the constitutionally provided uh, guidelines? You know, I'll say, Chris, I'd be all for um, making us finish on time. You know, you look at being a citizen um, le legislature and having to keep our calendars as open as we can, yet going about our day-to-day -day normal lives is really, really hard. So I do think we need to look at how we um, put parameters around and require us to get that work done um, before we leave regular session. Um, you know, I think when you look at where we need to get to next week, um, most of it, I think, will center around differences in spending. We had big differences in where dollars were going for education. So I think that's one that I'm sure folks are talking about. We weren't as far as apart in, in other areas, though, as folks thought we were. So I think, I think hopefully, um, folks who've been on those conference committees have been rolling up their sleeves and figuring out how to bring us closer together. You know, the governor was out in my district at uh, one of those public-private preschool events and talked about his support of continuing to ensure that we're providing more supports for early education and more dollars for preschools. We have a shortage of teachers there right now. Mm -hmm. So I think um, you're, you'll see some movement in some of those areas and there'll be some give and take. So I'm, I'm confident we'll, we'll be where we need to be next week, but hopefully those who've, who are serving on those conference um, committees for the budget have been working real hard together. Yeah, and this is not a shot at anyone on the conference committee, but adjusting the rules always <clears throat> adjust the game, doesn't it? If you Think about baseball, if you increase the size of the strike zone, pitchers are going to pitch differently, hitters are going to hit differently to do it in 
football, if you uh, reduce the size of the field goals, they're going to less likely go for field goals from from farther out and you know change the game. Delegate Cherry, what do you think is it going to take to in the rules or in law? I know the lieutenant governor came up with a proposal today or last night in Amherst County. Uh, calling for more of a punitive measure of $500 uh, per day docking uh, fine, which is probably unconstitutional. But however, uh, the point was made, wasn't it, that, that something has to be done to put a lever in the game to get people to get the job done on time. One of them I was discussing with a, a, a very well-known uh, policy person dating back to the Allen years and was talking to a former leader of the House Democrats back in the 90s, who said that, that the House Democratic leader said, you know, he, he said that the, the conference committee, uh, the conferees should be replaced if they can't come up with an agreement after a certain point to get them, you know, if they can't come up to an agreement, find someone who can. So um, giving you a little bit of a perspective from the new guy in the room, um, it is frustrating to, to walk into something like this and see it not function the way you presume from the outside that it's supposed to. And I was talking to a uh, more mature delegate, I won't say older, but a more mature delegate the other day. And he was saying that it didn't used to be this way, that it was very much the understanding that you were going to do your job, you were going to do it on time. And somewhere along the way, the budget got weaponized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what it's come down to now is that instead of it being about the dollars, it becomes about what can we attach to the budget in the forms of budgetary amendments that we can weaponize. Uh, maybe some legislation that we couldn't get through the floor or somewhere else. And if we can tie it to a dollar, perhaps we can win the, the long game on someone by holding out and making sure that, that we get what we want through the budgetary process. And so at least from a new guy's perspective, it seems like that's what's going on is, is we weaponize something that was never intended to be. And I think uh, there's got to be a solution, whether that is uh, the speaker and uh, the Senate pro tem saying we are going to commit that this is going to be done or whether we have to do it legislatively and hold ourselves accountable because that's part of being in the legislators holding ourselves accountable to make sure we're doing our job and doing it the way we're supposed to. Well, one of the things that uh, I've noticed from this administration of the house versus the last administration of the house was at least they were able to agree on a procedural resolution. How are they ever going to behave and operate amongst each other? Is that the, uh, the, the appropriate place possibly to put into a, the resolution that if the budget conferees don't meet the, the deadline by, the, you know, by, the, by when we're supposed to adjourn Senate DA, that we're going to appoint new, commit, new conferees who, who can get the job done and or uh, eliminate, as we did back in, I'm dating myself, nearly 20 years ago, ooh, uh, you know, we just didn't take the per diems. Uh, I'll let Kerry jump in there, but th there's got to be a solution. And, and whether... I think but you, admit conferees, a, you admit there's a problem. You admit yes. there's a problem. Yes, there's a problem. How do we fix so first, it? First, the first, the first, what's the first step in solving problems? I mean, you have one. Carrie, do we have a problem? I think I said earlier, Chris, you know, being a citizen legislature, we're all supposed to go back and lead our day to day lives <clears throat> and function like normal citizens. And you can't do that when you're having to, as best you can, keep your schedule open for months at a time. Um, so, you know, I think that's where, again, we, we do have a problem. I, I don't know what the solution is, but I, I definitely think we need to put our heads together and figure out how to ensure our work gets done. Well, I would, I would be more than happy to, to offer more than my two cents on the issue. Because, A, first of all, y'all need to get paid more. And don't say anything because I don't want you to you know, get taken out of context in your political campaigns. That's one of the most difficult things to do. But you are a grossly underpaid legislature. You make, you make less than, literally less 
than the current minimum wage in Virginia, less. And I think if we're going to make those structural reforms, we have to make them in toto and deal with the, uh, the compensation for legislators and, uh, and, not, and not go year round. But I think there's a, there needs to be a, a total reform package that the, the people can, can uh, be worthy of. I, I agree with you that it needs to be more than just dealing with the budget getting done. You know, when you, I think it is fabulous that here in our Commonwealth, we are not a full-time legislative body. We were intended to be. I think it makes it where we're out and amongst people more that we're interacting and having to carry out our own businesses, be full-time parents and all those other things in our community. And I think it makes us better lawmakers because we have diversity of experiences my fear with where my, you know, I'm, I'm pretty new. This is only my third session that I've been in, but I feel like I've been in full time for three years with all the special sessions that have been called. And, you know, luckily for me, I'm a small business owner and work for myself and I can make myself that flexibility, but it's an added stress, right? You're, it's an added stress for your family, for your job. And I fear that unless we put some more parameters, not just around the budget, but about getting all of our work done and ensuring that we're not continuing to be called back um, for special sessions, we're going to lose really good, highly qualified individuals running from office because you almost have to be able to be full time to do this job. And so I don't think it's just the budget. I think we need to really look long and hard about how we get called back, why we get called back, how long we can be called back. Um, there, there's a lot, just my three years is not at all how I thought um, I would be serving. Um, and I've managed to do it again because I have flexibility, but I don't know how someone, um, you know, whose boss is going, how many more days are you going to be away? You told me it was X. Um, well, and, with and all you're the different relatively close. And, and I'm close, right? You imagine I live in being, Richmond, uh, but imagine being, you know, two and a half to six hours away. I can't imagine. So again, I think we need to look at all of it bigger picture okay. so that we can continue to be a strong, diverse citizen led um, legislature and and keep those parameters around getting our work done um, timely and efficiently and then going back to our communities and hearing from people. Okay, great. Uh, let's dive into some of the policy debates of the day, namely education. The Washington Post editorial recently out basically saying not only- I told you so. What's that? What's that? They said, I told you so. They said, I told you so in agreeing with Governor Glenn Youngkin. Uh, Delegate Cherry, what are your thoughts? Um, agreed 100%. So um, for your viewers who may not know a lot about my background, I am an educator by trade. I run a private Christian school as my day-to-day -day job. And so I have lived out the educational pandemic for the last now three years and seen uh, what damage has been done. Um, our school uh, closed in 2020 in March, like everyone else did, because we didn't know what we were facing. We didn't know what we were dealing with. But by the fall of 2020, we were back open, full face-to-face -face instruction. Our kids didn't fall behind. Uh, testing tells us our kids didn't fall behind. And yet the new statistics that are out through uh, Governor Youngkin's 33-paged uh, report is that kids suffered mightily when they were shifted to virtual education. They have fallen behind. We have lowered standards, which is worse to me. It's one thing when they don't achieve. It's something else when we lower the standard to make it look like they achieved, right. but they really didn't achieve. And right. so that, that's an even worse outcome to me. Uh, Delegate Coiner and I are, are kind of two sides of the fence on this. She is a strong proponent of public education, which I am as well, but I, I see the school choice aspect being very valuable. 
And so I think there's a lot of perspective in, in this podcast about education and about how to make it work and how to make it work well. Well, well and, and as far as the, the public education versus uh, school choice issues, I, I've just never seen it as, you know, us versus them. It's about, right. you know, what's in the best interest of the child? What's the best format and environment for a child to learn in? In, in America, if you are wealthy enough, you can move into a school district with the best schools, if you can afford the houses uh, and the property in that area, that is a form of school choice. I mean, it's, it, and it happens every day. It's just not a government program. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the market telling you that, you know, uh, let's be honest, if you had to choose between uh, certain you know, schools in your district, you probably tell someone where to go and where not to go. In the best sense of your child, and you could physically move there. Or in some cases, you can pay uh, pay the school uh, a stipend, uh, tuition essentially. I know several people, friends of mine, who paid for their kids not to go to the schools in the city of Stan, but would send them and pay the county schools um, uh, tuition essentially. Delegate Coiner, I don't think you and are you and Mike that far apart on these issues, or what? Um, you know, I'm a huge supporter and believer in public education. I just think we've gone down some some pathways that were not in the best interest of our kids. You look at, you know, as the Washington Post editorial board pointed out, they pointed out in 2017, you know, lowering our cut scores and our standards was not smart. I also think, you know, we have put a lot of burdens on our public schools to collect data from kids via testing. And we have not used it to improve education. You know, the whole purpose of collecting data from anything, you name it, is so that you can see where you are and make the best decisions based on the information you obtain. And we haven't been using it. You know, it's why I brought the Literacy Act this past session is because I saw 20 years worth of PALS data on our kindergarten through third graders that no one had been using in the Commonwealth. And we've been throwing millions of dollars at a problem with no return on that investment. And for the first time, we're doing something about it now. We're using that data. We're going to ensure that our kids are learning to read, right. but we've consistently have that problem. You know, we spend a, we've spent a lot of time um, in our, you know, fourth grade and up um, grades, you know, wanting kids to get STEM education and wanting our kids to learn all of, all of history and we kind of glossed over the basic fact that if you aren't proficient in reading, you can't do any of these other fields. You can't obtain the information about our history. You can't do STEM. And we, we have completely ignored that fact. So, you know, we, we tackled the K through three this year, but we know we have to tackle fourth through eighth grade next year. So we're, we're going to be delving deep into that as well. But Literacy Act is a huge deal for Virginia. You know, I've met with other folks from around the country and they're like, you know, the, the, the law that you all put together is the best that we've seen. So that's really exciting to hear that the hard work we did in here Virginia will help other people. But now the implementation of it and supporting our schools moving forward is critical. Yeah, that's it. And, and the, the pitting of us versus them <laughs> is not a healthy construct, especially when it comes to no. children. Uh, so I guess the, the operative question is, do you support uh, charter schools? Do you support school tax credit programs so kids can go to private schools? Uh, I know that's income-based right now in Virginia. You know, for me, I do think that certain segments of our students are in need of different um, classroom settings. You know, look at our students with disabilities. Um, you know, we saw in some of our schools, we were just unable to provide the level of service that they needed. 
We saw a bill this year that I supported where, you know, kids were being bullied and um, being picked on in their schools and unable um, to get away from that. And I do think there's a need to give kids and families choices when it's not best fitting for them. Um, I haven't been a supporter of um, full school choice and everybody doing as they as they please across the board. I do think it takes away from our communities who are unable um, to provide those resources and opportunities for their for their kids and their communities. I think there's a deeper conversation to be had um, about what our schools um, are able to provide for resources, what um, parameters we're putting on them and burdens. You know, you look at the extra testing and you look at extra requirements for our public schools. And I think it's time we take a step back and say, what are we doing and why are we doing it? You know, what's benefiting kids, what's benefiting teachers and parents and ensuring that we we listen to folks. I mean, we've heard from parents loud and clear, you know, what you're what you've been doing isn't isn't meeting our needs. We've heard from teachers what you all are doing, the decisions you're making isn't meeting our needs. And we see it from our data. Um, that it hasn't done a great deal for our children. So really looking at that conversation moving forward. I think the literacy is a huge um, win um, that we had this past year. And I think we can do more good bipartisan work. You know, you look at the fights over things that people were fighting on different sides of the aisle. We had 100% support for fixing our literacy problem in Virginia. Other states can't even get on the same page about literacy. So the work can be done, but I think we have to come, we have to start our work from a place of admitting we have a problem and being willing to work together to come up with a solution um, that we can all support. So I do think we, it's possible to get there and supporting our public schools and their construct. So uh, just to back it up here, you're okay with the school tax credit program? Um, so I am only supportive at the moment of allowing our students who are struggling, we can't meet their needs in public schools um, to be able to have those opportunities. Um, okay, uh, and then what, then what would, what would you support then if they're if the schools aren't meeting the needs who determines that and then what are the next steps to to uh, to mitigate that well i think we already have that in place now we've just put the um we've made it very difficult for our public schools to be able to make those choices you know our public schools today already have the opportunity for lab schools they they have the opportunity to be innovative we just haven't put in place the incentives um, for them to be able to take those risks it's a risk right to try something new and so I really think if you look within the parameters of what we're doing already, we have a lot of opportunities for our public school systems to be risk takers, um, to come up with innovative solutions where things are not working for certain segments of their population and their schools. And so I really think we ought to put that um, incentive in place to encourage our local school boards um, to get creative and start looking at their, the opportunities that they have. We see it already in some of our specialty centers and some of our programs where um, they have magnet schools within schools. Um, again, it's just um, giving them the opportunity to, to be risk takers is important. I think we do that through incentives. Mike, where, where are you on uh, the various policies? Um, I am a big advocate for school choice. I've studied other school districts around the nation that it's in. Indiana's a, a popular one. Florida's a popular one. Um, but it's not just public-private. And, and Chris, you said a moment ago that it's not a us versus them. If you go to Massachusetts, which is widely regarded as the number one public education uh, state in the nation, they have public school choice. And so you can choose your public school that you go to and your tax dollars follow you to whichever school. And obviously there's some circumstances where they have to balance it, make sure you're not overcrowding the good schools and leaving the other. But I think anytime you have competition, it creates innovation, which uh, makes people be more innovative and, and to cut overhead, cut administration, 
Um, you look at the per student spending in some of our public school systems, and, and it's, uh, I'm gonna give you a perfect example within my district, Colonial Heights in Chesterfield County. Chesterfield County spends about $10,000 per student per year to educate. Colonial Heights is spending $17,000 per student per year to educate for their budget for the 2022-23 school year. And so um, I was at an education conference a couple of weeks ago and I made this point and I think, it's a, I think it's a salient one. And that is the fact that even if we had full vouchers tomorrow, there's not capacity in the private schools that exist to take all the kids that would want to go. And so we can't advocate the idea that public schools need to get better. It's an all approach. I think all of the solutions should be looked at, whether it's vouchers, whether it's charter, whether it's uh, lab, whether it is voucher, whether it is EISTC, which is the, the scholarship that uh, Carrie was talking about a few moments ago with the bullying, where we're trying to give these kids options on ways to get out if they can't afford it. Um, so I think it's an all approach. I don't think we can look at one thing and go, here's our silver bullet. We fire the silver bullet, education gets fixed. I think we have to take a multi-pronged approach to it and, and not leave one or the other out of the conversation. Yeah, I'll, uh, just to, to remind you, you both that the uh, tuition assistance grant program that has been wildly successful in Virginia for higher education uh, was instituted a number of decades ago. As a matter of fact, I was a recipient of that when I was in college back in the 80s. And that is nothing more than a, than a voucher program. So we already have a voucher program in Virginia if you're fortunate enough to graduate high school and go to a private school, private university in, or college in Virginia. And another is, a, is an anecdote from when I was in uh, middle school. I, there were two middle schools, they were called junior high schools then in Stanton, Shelburne on the west end of town and uh, John Lewis on the east or northeast part of town. And uh, I, I had to go to both. Because I took a class in eighth grade Latin over in John Lewis, and then in ninth grade, summer before ninth grade, we moved to that school district, and so I went to that school. So I actually went to both junior high schools. Later in life, I was on a boarding of zoning. I was on the board of zoning appeals in, in uh, Stanton, serving alongside of my former principal, which is one of the great things about uh, growing up in your community and serving it. And I asked him after uh, one of our meetings. I said, "Hey, Paul." What was it like every day waking up? Because we, we have a we have a consolidated school now, one middle school. Um, what was it like every day going up against or uh, you know having to be in the same town as John Lewis? You were the principal at Shelburne. He said we tried every day to beat each other. You know we were trying to compete against each other every single day in every single thing, and that's what drove us. And it, it drove their innovation, I think, far more than most government programs can. And so to your, to your point, Delegate Cherry, I, I agree with you on the competitive nature. And I think also one of the problems we have in, this, in the state is that we have far too many school districts um, that don't cooperate you know, inside of each other, especially when you have Colonial Heights and Chesterfield so closely related to one another, or you have cities and independent cities inside of counties and they're separate school systems. And they don't, they don't collaborate nearly as much as they should and share their resources. So that when you cite those statistics of Colonial Heights having $17,000 a year, it's largely because of scale. It's, it's, not, it's not like, oh, we're gonna spend more than Chesterfield County. It's that Chesterfield County beats you all on scale. And scale is really important when you can deliver the various services that, that, that kids need. Let's switch over to, if we can right now, to tax policy because the linkage between obviously local taxes and paying for our schools is inextricably linked. Uh, where, where, do you, where are you on the, um, the governor's um, policy suggestions on tax reform, Mike Cherry? So I'm absolutely an advocate and supporter of uh, doubling the state uh, standard deduction. I think that's a starting place for us. Um, 
looking at local um, tax rates and that kind of stuff. I know assessments have gone up, whether that's real estate, whether that's used cars, um, localities are, are struggling to try to find that balance point of uh, having enough revenue to do what they need to do and understanding that inflation is killing everyone. Uh, I think the um, uh, election in 2022, this fall election, as we're looking at the House of Representatives and some local offices, uh, I think the answer is going to be it's the economy, stupid. Like everybody's going to be talking about the economy. Sure. So here we go recycling 1980s uh, slogans, but it, it, it's the economy. 92. 92. <laughs> <laughs> you, you youngins. You youngins. <laughs> I don't remember. So there, that, that's what I think it is, is how do we support the, the individual and give them the maximum relief possible uh, right. from the tax burden? Delegate Coiner, you've been, this is your third term. You've had, you know, you, you served in some pretty difficult circumstances, um, not just being in the minority, uh, but also through the COVID era. And now we're talking about this largesse coming in and what to do with it. Where, where, where is that, where's Delegate Coiner on this? Yeah, I, I agree with Mike, you know, and looking at where the governor's tax um, policy priorities are um, supportive of those. And I agree with them. You know, I think what it comes down to is uh, I think it's hard for Virginians to hear, you know, we have a surplus and all this extra money coming in as a state, and yet they're not feeling any benefit from us doing so well. And so that is, I think, is going to be the focus. Um, it's the focus right now, but we're hearing from folks. Um, again, they want life to be as easy as possible. That's the goal, right? Our goal, goal as government is to get out of the way, let you live your life and it be as easy as possible. And I think what all they're feeling are really where government's making it more difficult. And whether it's, you know, um, federal level, state level, local level, you know, they don't, citizens don't separate those out. You know, they expect no. all of us to figure no. this out and, and work it out together. But, you know, I, I laugh. It's the simple things um, that make people go, what in the heck are y'all doing? You know, we've got the, uh, I'll give you a simple one, the Jif peanut butter recall, right? My, my household's huge Jif peanut butter fans. <laughs> and yet you you throw out your Jif peanut butter. And you know, the soon as they say they'll have new Jif peanut butter available for sale is June 4th. I mean, it's silly things like that, that people, it, it's not, it's not a big thing, but you add oh. up all these little things that are oh, making yeah. life where it's like one more thing I'm dealing with as a mom, one more thing I'm dealing with here. And people are frustrated with government. I mean, they, they, well, they just. It, it underscores the reality because uh, we talk about uh, significant problems like gas prices, significant problems like baby formula. And you know, America is being bailed out with airlifted uh, baby formula from Europe. I mean, to, be, to think of America as having to be, you know, be the recipient of an airlift is, is kind of shocking to the, to the conscious mind of, the, 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 of Americans. And then you have those who are largely unaffected by that, who don't have babies anymore, although we had four and you know, we, we've, I can't imagine what the conversation would be like in our house if we couldn't find baby formula. My goodness. Uh, well, Chris, you know, I, th I think it goes back to their point, though. You know, you look at our supply chain problems and how many ships are waiting to get to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to a question, you know, during COVID that was asked. And I think it continues to be asked, what are we doing as government to make our policies easier for businesses to produce here? Well, we're not so reliant on these supply chains for things that when we need to provide food, we have food. When we need baby formula, we have baby formula. You know, some basic things that we should be looking at. You know, you look at meat processing. We talked about the fact that 
even within the U.S., you know, how far we have to go as Virginians to really look at processors of our meat, to send our own meat, our farmers here um, have their animals and they ship them off, ship meat off and it comes back. You know, I do think what we've experienced through COVID and currently today is going to have many folks looking to our layers of government saying, y'all need to work together to figure this out, you know, to ensure that we can you know, feed folks, that we have um, items that are able to be purchased on our shelves. And what are you doing to guarantee that? So I, I do think some policy um, decisions really need to be examined based on the supply chain issues we've experienced. Well, again, it's, all, it's, it's a confluence, isn't it, of uh, public policy and the private sector wanting to squeeze every last bit of inefficiency out of their operations. And we, we've, we've seen in the market this just-in-time <clears throat> delivery and how things are perfectly timed with all these major retailers so they can, they can get all the return they, that they can. It leaves, in my estimation, a blind spot to these realities when you have a pandemic, when you have certain parts of our supply chain break down on us and you have legitimately um, more, uh, the more important items in our, in our economy than others. And this one... You know, they've been they've known this thing from since February apparently, uh, but there's a, there's there's has to almost be a, a vulnerability um, review or inventory taking like you know how are we going to diversify our offerings because especially in the food business you know um, one of the things we need to worry about is is making sure not just our supply chain is is uh, robust but also that our diversity of food offerings so that when situations happen like Ukraine who supplies so much of the world's wheat and um, uh, soy or sunflower oil, cooking oil, that has a, has a profound reverberation throughout the world and can destabilize entire regions. Uh, mm -hmm. Not necessarily a, a place for state government, but certainly a place for state government, government leaders to listen and, and recognize the problem. And to be yeah, aware, you know, oh, sorry, sorry, Delegate Corner, uh, and to see it before it comes because we're seeing now, you mentioned the Ukraine, most of the crops aren't getting planted this year. When they supply what they do in terms of the world food, we need to be looking now for what that's gonna look like. Where is that gonna come from for America? If we typically buy 50% of ours from, from that region and we can't anymore, where's it gonna come from? And forecasting those shortcomings now before it becomes a crisis, as opposed to waiting like we did with the baby formula until it became a crisis, and mothers couldn't get food for their kids, that finally we jump in, the government, I say we, the government finally jumps in and does something, uh, which is load up C-17s, which is what I used to do, uh, and with 75,000 pounds of, of baby formula and bring it over from Europe, so. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of programs we could get going on this to incentivize the, the market to break free of what has happened in a lot of our, our a lot of our industries, and it's happened in, in my industry, bottled water, over the years. You have this massive consolidation to create the scale, the profit, uh, the the efficiencies that that are natural in markets. This is just how this is just how markets behave. We see it even in the airline industry. You know, you have you know deregulation and expansion and consolidation and expansion and consolidation. That happens in the banking industry. So many industries. Uh, and I guess when it comes to food security, we need to be a little bit more aggressive and not just let the uh, the free market go unfettered. I mean, Chris, I don't think it's, you know, food is the, is the big one right now because we're experiencing it on so many different levels. But, you know, it's, it's also looking at our own policies as a, as a commonwealth. You know, I tell people all the time, um, you know, things are all about balance. 
Um, I am all for, we all want clean water. We all want to conserve as much energy. We all want as much taking care of our environment for future generations as we can. And, but I also think we need to look at, well, how quickly do we do certain things and what's the balance and impact on jobs and cost of living? You know, I, I mean, when folks see the headline today talking about, you know, power bills rising because we're converting certain sectors of our energy industry quickly over to alternatives, you know, folks I think are scratching their head and going, wait a second, I can't afford what I'm doing now. And right. now you're predicting I'm going to have this. So, you know, I think we, we need to look at all of the different pieces. You know, we've got so many different amazing resources here in the Commonwealth and we put policies in place that sometimes pit one important interest against another and how we better balance how we're looking at the long-term sustainability of our state is important. So I think there's work to be done in that as well. Yeah, we, every time you, we start talking policy with with legislators and candidates, they start you, you start thinking outside the box. Go, wow, we we've got a lot to do and not not a lot of time to do it. And that's and I appreciate y'all's time here today. Let's do uh, delegate Corn. I know we did a rundown on your favorite books, TV shows, movies. Let's get us update us on those real quick. Favorite books, movies, TV shows. Because since we already had you on the VIP, updating. So I'm actually reading um, the Power of Forgiveness right now. Um, which is, yeah, kind of deep, um, sitting over here somewhere. Um, so a little deep, um, you know, but um, really, really important. You know, I think when you look in terms of especially being um, an elected office and how people can ping you, right, with different things, the ability to um, forgive and let go is so critical in all aspects of our life, but especially in a place where folks can't always be the nicest. Well, let's, um, so let's, that's, let's hold there. Okay. What's what's the one thing, not that you want to be forgiven for, but you're but you're <laughs> you're getting too deep, Chris, for this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. Hey, you're a second time participant, so you're the you're the you're the veteran in the group. But you know, if you had to forgive someone in politics or something and go, you know, I'm just gonna grant forgiveness over that and and move on, what would you do? What would you do? I do it you, who or what would you forgive? Like what has trespassed upon you? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about there's any one thing, Chris. You know, I think when yeah. you're in, yes, there is. Um, nice. no, when you're in politics, it's kind of a daily give and take. You know, you look at and you get frustrated and you sometimes just don't understand. And sometimes there's nothing to understand. It's so just is it more of a mindset? Just like, oh, that's just, that's just politics. We're going to let it go. You know, I forgive, you know, grant passage, move on with your life. I think it is more of a mindset. And, you know, I've been really fortunate to have that kind of mindset instilled in me um, for, for a long time. You know, it's kind of like you forgive it and, and move on to the next thing. Because it really holds on to you, not the other person, if, you, if you're unable mm -hmm. to do that. Um, but really just an interesting read. And I think okay. just um, else, able uh, to take different perspective. TV shows, movies, what you got? Um, well, I have been a big Marvel fan for a long time. So my middle son is the only person left in my household who will binge watch movies with me. Um, so we've been on a kick all the way over these years. <laughs> oh, it's so great. So he's he's my snuggler and he will, um, you know, in short night, he's like, do you want to watch a movie? I'm like, yes, let's do it. So we're big Marvel fans. Um, we had a lot of fun watching all of the Spider-Man movies too, as they were, you know, the new one came out and then rewatching old ones and had a lot of fun with that. So um, all the the fun stuff, you know, talk about new Top Gun things, all of, all of that okay. good stuff coming out soon. So yeah. Okay. All right. Mike, uh, favorite book of all time? 
Oh, gosh. Um, so many along the way. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm chasing a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff. Okay. Uh, really enjoying uh, his kind of take on, on mankind and philosophy and, and how we interact with one another as a species. And, and I think uh, he brings a lot of depth uh, to a lot of things. Um, beyond that, uh, I just stay busy trying to stay healthy and trying to run the school. We're winding down right now. Uh, I'm not a big movie buff. Never been one that would really carve out time just to go sit for hours on what's the end. But what's your favorite movie of all time? Uh, young Guns. There you go. Back that to the I'm a Young Guns you know? guy. I'm a, uh, you know, uh, Emilio Estevez and, and all the boys back in uh, Young Gunville. Uh, okay. It's probably the my favorite of all time. Okay. Uh, TV show. I'm going to go even older school, MASH. Uh, grew up with <sighs> oh, my dad watching it and just absolutely, we, I could sit down tomorrow and watch uh, an entire season back to back to back to back to back. And, and even though I've seen them a hundred times, that's just a classic, always will be. Uh, so yeah, MASH. I'll tell you how much MASH played a part in our family. We used to watch it uh, three shows back to back. We'd binge on different channels when it wasn't on after, uh, after dinner or during dinner with, with my father when he'd come home from work. But we went so far as to ship in uh, for our new groundbreaking for our, our, our warehouse and standard production facility. That was the late 90s. Um, Tony Paco's Hungarian hot dogs from Toledo, Ohio, in, uh, in honor of uh, Corporal Klinger. <laughs> we, we, had those, we had those shipped in <laughs> for the event because my dad is such a huge MASH fan. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, favorite sports teams, Mike? Uh, I'm a big college basketball fan. So the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is, is my diet and true that I'll always be Carolina blue for the rest of my life. Well, um, the team. pride that I have now as a uh, private school administrator is one of my kids is at UNC will be playing football next year as an offensive lineman. He's six, eight, three 30, and is going to be an incredible linchpin to their offensive line for the next four years. Uh, so North Carolina Tar Heels start, stop, end. That's my sports uh, love. Well, that's unfortunate. So um, <laughs> that's really almost gross and disgusting. Um, although, I, although I had a guy grow up, uh, I played uh, high school uh, travel ball with growing up as a kid. He went there, was number one recruit out of high school in 1985. Kevin Madden, you might remember Kevin Madden from, uh, from Stanton. So um, we were all like, Why, why'd you go there? And he just, he just loved it. So mm -hmm. Smart man, smart man. No, not really, no. <laughs> Something, something's terribly wrong when our elected legislators in Virginia support other schools, other state schools, by the way. But uh, <laughs> I, I well, was Chris, told you know when I filled topic for another day. <laughs> I was told when I filled my bracket out for the March Madness to. I was reminded by my staff, you are a legislator in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and so <laughs> I, I played it close to the vest. I, I didn't put my tarheels where I thought they belonged, and then what did they do? They make a run to the national championship game. Should have right. should have gone with my heart, not my head. Gone with my heart and said Tar Heels are going to win it all, and they almost did. Oh well, ACC basketball, nothing like it growing up. Delegate you got Coyner, that right. Delegate Coiner, finish us up. Where are you on sports teams? Well, Chris, you may remember I'm a huge VC basketball fan. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, big VC basketball fan. Um, I also love NBA. So um, I used to be a Golden State Warriors number one fan. Switched to Denver Nuggets when Bones Highland made the move to Denver from VCU. Again, tried and true. Follow my VCU guys. Okay. Um, so, you know, I feel confident Golden State Warriors, um, they're going to come out on top. feel fairly certain of it. They've had easy games against the Mavericks, sadly. But, 
yeah, I think that's where they'll end up. Okay. Well, basketball. Basketball. Nice, nice. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the VIP podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, and share on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. And thanks also to Delegate Mike Cherry and Delegate Carrie Coiner for joining us today on the VIP podcast brought to you by VCT, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to seeing you next time.